listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. You say, where is that? Find Matthew and go backwards a few pages. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And uh, we have been learning some myths about marriage and we have been obliterating those myths and replacing them with the truth. The reason that we're in this series, I told you a few weeks ago, I was only talking to two people because I had some final premarital counseling to get in before Brooke and David got married on Friday night, and they did. It was amazing. Our family has been crying and laughing and eating and dancing. It's just been the best time ever. I mean, Friday night was just awesome. And actually, Andrea's family has come in, and I want to introduce them to you. Andrea's dad, Carrie, and his wife, Judy. Come on, you guys, stand up. This is Andrea's dad here, and uh, he's been such a great father. Father-in-law, and then Andrea's sister Robin and her husband Chris and cousin Noah and cousin Joshua are here. And so it's been great to have the family in. And uh, we seriously have just been having such a great time here. On Friday night, we set this room up in like the round and we had a platform in the middle. And then uh, uh, Brooke actually entered through this and I got to walk her down the aisle. And uh, David, I don't know if you've noticed, Mr. Cool, okay? Um, David is like, he's just really above all the emotion and everything. He's just really stable. It's one of the things that really attracted us to, uh, to David because Brooke wasn't. And so they complimented really great and and so he's just this really great guy and so you kind of wonder is the dad I'm like does he really understand what he's you know getting into here and so it was this awesome moment when when the doors flung open and David saw Brooke for the first time he turned into a blubbering mess it was awesome man he's just like yeah there you go that's what I'm talking about as the weight descended upon him about the responsibility that he was getting himself into so it was just fantastic time would you like to see a picture of Brooke and the love of her life you want to see this okay here it is (laughs) yep yep Sursa 1996 there and um yeah, that's, that's the way it ought to be right there. But, um, you know, so she got an upgrade. You, you want to see, see the guy? All right, so here it is. Yeah. But don't you think she looked happier in the other picture? I mean, I don't know, she looks pretty happy there, don't you think? So uh, we're just thrilled with uh, uh, what God has done. That was uh, 22 years in the preparation, and we wanted to make sure that they were not believing modern marriage myths. And so that first one we talked about, marriage is obsolete, like 40% of the people their age don't even think marriage is a thing, it's unnecessary, it's old-fashioned. So we obliterated that and replaced it with this truth, marriage is good. Marriage is good for you. And then the second week, that second myth, we learned uh, a lot of people think marriage will make me happy. But if you're married, you know that's not true. So uh, we learned that no, only God can make you happy. If you think marriage is gonna make you happy, you're asking marriage to do something God never intended it to do. Marriage doesn't make me happy, marriage makes me better. That's the truth. And if I get better, I got a better chance of being happy, right? And then the third myth we looked at last week was uh, love will hold my marriage together. Not true, not true, that's a myth. Here's the truth, marriage will hold my love 
together. And we got a new definition of marriage. God's definition of marriage has nothing to do with feelings. It's all about actions. And so we learned that from 1 Corinthians 13 last week, which brings us to myth number four. If you're ready for it, say, I'm ready for it. Some of you are not even ready for this. You're not. You, some of you are not going to be able to handle this. This is a tough one, okay? So here's myth number four. Myth number four is this. My children will be fine even if my marriage isn't. That's heavy. Some of us think our children aren't paying attention to our marriage. Some of us think, you know, you don't, you don't, need, to have, you don't need to be married to have kids. Marriage will be fine. Kids will be fine even if you're not married. Uh, n- nothing could be further from the truth. Here's the truth. The truth is this. The health of my marriage greatly impacts the health of my children. Now, let me just say at the beginning here, I am looking into faces that tell me there's a lot of brokenness and damage and history and regret. And if I'd known what I know now, I wouldn't have done what I did then. I recognize all that. And I want to remind you before we dive into this, that this is a place of grace. God welcomes your brokenness. If you will humble yourself and bring all those broken pieces of, of broken marriages and broken relationships and broken parenting, you bring all of that to Jesus, in the gospel you get a fresh start, new beginning, boundless grace, unlimited mercy, all because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And so do not... Go out of here feeling condemned. If you will bring all of your brokenness to Jesus, that's a great place to start. I'm looking into faces that that used to be broken. He brought all that brokenness about marriage and relationships, and I'm looking at some incredible, incredible stories of grace. But you have to humble yourself. You have to put yourself under the authority of God's word. What we're about to do is look at God's original design for biological mothers to marry biological fathers and together in a committed love relationship for a lifetime, raise godly children. The reality is my children will either be drawn to marriage based on what they've seen in my marriage or they will withdraw from marriage based on what they see in my marriage. The people that are cheering the loudest for your marriage to work are your children. But when mom and dad fail to have an intimate, permanent, durable marriage, the ones that suffer the most are the next generation. When we believe that marriage is obsolete, men and women become dads and moms without becoming husbands and wives, and as a result, boys and girls fail to want to have anything to do with becoming husbands and wives. Do you see the problem? That's what happens when a culture thinks marriage is obsolete. So we are replacing it with the truth here. We're gonna summarize those comments in about three points. But have you been paying attention to the news? Before we even open the Bible to replace the myth, we know this instinctively, that children shouldn't be separated from parents. Is that an obvious truth? 
There's been a lot of attention to what's been going on on the southern border, uh, in the immigration policy, and yet, have you noticed the silence with regard to what parents voluntarily do to separate a child from their biological mother and father? There's been silence on that. I was reading um, an article from the Washington Post. The headline of this particular article was this. It says, what separation from parents does to children? Now, this article was written as a critique on U.S. immigration policy, but I want you to listen through the ears of marriage and parenting. This is what they say. Research on child-parent separation is driving pediatricians, psychologists, and other health experts to vehemently oppose the Trump administration's new border-crossing policy, which has separated more than 2,000 immigrant children from their parents in recent weeks. This is what happens inside children when they stay when they are forcibly separated from their parents. Their heart rate goes up. The body releases a, a flood of stress hormones, such as cortisol and adrenaline. These stress hormones can start killing off dendrites, the little branches in the brain cells that transmit messages. In time, the stress can start killing off neurons, and especially in younger children, wreaking dramatic and long-term damage, both psychologically and to the physical structure of the brain. The effect is catastrophic, said Charles Nelson, a pediatrics professor at Harvard Medical School. There's so much research on this that if people paid attention, they would never allow this to happen. Nearly 7,700 mental health professionals and 142 organizations have also signed a petition urging President Trump to end the policy, which he did on Friday, to pretend that separated children do not grow up with the shrapnel of this traumatic experience embedded in their minds is to disregard everything we know about child development, the brain, and trauma. And I would add the Bible because God's plan is for biological mothers and biological fathers to be in a one flesh covenant love relationship called marriage and provide the divine context to raise the next generation of children. Marriage is not obsolete and we instinctively know it, but somehow we ignore the data about what separating children from biological parents does. Let's consider these three points. First of all, marriage provides mothers help from fathers and fathers help from mothers. Let's see it on the first page of our Bible. This is where we get the building blocks of everything. So what is God's original design? Genesis 1, 27 and 28 and 29 say this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, have babies. 
raised them together as a male human and a, male, and a female human working together, not only to produce, but to raise the next generation of children. Now, just think about God's logic here. God is creator. He could have created the world any way he wanted to. He did not have to create gender, but he did. And when he did, he made men dependent upon women to procreate. And he made women dependent on men to procreate. In other words, God did not want us raising children by ourselves. We're dependent upon a partner, not only to create them, but to raise them. In other words, God created the first team sport called parenting, okay? God did not design men to raise children without women or women to raise children without men. You've seen our family. Andrea and I have these five children. We have four biological children, and then when the two oldest ones left, we decided we got way too much room in this house, and we got nothing else going on. So let's just add um, another child to the mix. And so now we have five. Now, when you saw the picture there, when Brooke arrived, 1996, this this. We, we could double team her, right? But then when Zach arrived 13 months later, now we had to switch to a man-to-man defense, right? And then a little while later, Allie showed up. Now you gotta switch to a zone defense because you are outnumbered, okay? So it's like we got one that's on the loose because we can only take care of two at a time in the man-to-man thing. So you, you have a, a zone defense. And then Leah showed up. Now you gotta switch to a prevent defense. That's the only thing that works at that point. And then after that, you just keep throwing them in there. It's all prevent defense. But the truth is God did not design mother's to raise children without fathers or fathers to raise children without mothers. Now listen, there's all kinds of abnormalities that go along with that. Some of you are single moms and single dads, not by choice. And you are courageously raising these children by God's grace, empowered by his spirit. And that's what the gospel does. Some of you are gospel grandparents and you're raising your grandchildren because your children haven't. And so there's, there's so much abundant grace for children and, and there's love in a gospel community where we partner together with friends acting as surrogate moms and surrogate dads and grandparents and we need each other. That's the community called church. And so yes, there's so many people involved. Here's the second truth. Marriage is the greatest gift that you can give your children. And I want you to see it here from Malachi chapter two. I ask you to open your Bibles to Malachi two. If you're there, say, I'm there. Let's begin reading here in verse 13. And before we begin reading, let me set up a little bit. Where are we in the Bible, okay? We're in the last book of the Old Testament. Here's what's happening in the history of God's people. There was a time when God's people were disobedient. They became Uh, They came under the judgment of God. God allowed an enemy nation to invade Babylon and he carried captive the children of Israel back to Babylon. For 70 years, they were slaves uh, there in Babylon. Then God raised up a king, set the people free and said they could go return to their homeland in Israel. Now, even though they returned to their homeland, 
the land of God, not all of them return to the law of God, and not all of them experienced the favor and the blessing of God because even they were geographically where they were supposed to be, they still weren't spiritually where they were supposed to be. And a lot of them began believing the myth, marriage is obsolete. That's the context into which the prophet Malachi addresses the people of God. And we pick up the story in Malachi 2, verse 13. He says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. What were the people sensing? They were sensing like God is not like paying attention to us. God's not blessing us. His, his presence is so far away. God seems so distant. Why is he withholding favor? Why is he not answering our prayers? Why is he not accepting our offering? And that's what they ask in verse 14. But you say, why does he not? And he gives the answer. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. In other words, God's watching your marriage. God's watching how you treat your wife. God's watching how you treat your husband. And God's not happy with the way that you're treating your wife or your husband. And so it says, he was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Remember those promises you made? For better, for worse, in sickness and health, richer, for poorer, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. You remember some of that? Yeah, God thought you were serious about that. That's why he sent along a little poorer and a little sicker to see if you would actually be faithful. And he says, you weren't. And as a result, God has withdrawn his presence. And it goes on, it says, though she is your companion, your friend, your helper, and your wife by covenant, this is not a contract. You don't get to decide what you do based on what he does or she does. A covenant is a promise to remain faithful regardless of the performance of the other person. That's a marriage. And he says, you've been faithless. So this is what he says in verse 15. Did he, God, not make them one? Remember the male and female thing? Those thems? Male, one male, one female made into one marriage for one lifetime to pursue oneness spiritually, emotionally, and physically. That's what God made when he made marriage. Did he not make them one? Yes. But Trent, you don't understand how hard this is. I mean, marriage is hard. You can't expect like one guy to like be faithful to one woman for one lifetime. I mean, that's ridiculous. You, in this culture, you can't even believe that. You, that's ridiculous. Nobody can do that anymore. Yeah, that's why the next part says, he gave us a portion of the spirit in their union. God knows how hard this is. 
That's why he's given you a helper. It's called the Holy Spirit. Jesus left the Holy Spirit to enable and to empower every person who is genuinely born again to do things that would be impossible if you didn't have the Spirit. This is what makes us distinctly Christian. We are faithful to our marriage vows because the Spirit is dwelling in us and empowering us to keep those things that sound impossible to a lost world. But did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And then he asked a question. What was the one God seeking? Did you know that God was seeking something from your marriage? This is what God initiated and there's something he wants from your marriage and he supplies the answer. What was the one God seeking? Answer? Godly offspring. Godly children. So guard yourselves. Build a fence around your marriage. Eliminate every temptation, every attack. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Marriage is the greatest gift you can give to your children because it's in the context of one man and one woman pursuing oneness over one lifetime that children experience safety, security, commitment, and love. A few years ago, we built a house And after you build a house, you know, you don't have a yard. You just have a mud pit that the children track in the nice house, right? And so we wanted some grass and we wanted it fast. And so I called this company called HydroSeed. Do you know of this? This is an amazing thing. They They bring a big tanker truck out to your house. They pull out a big hose and they spray your yard with this concoction. And I said, well, what's in the concoction? He said, oh, everything you need for, to grow grass is in the concoction. I'm like, well, what's in there? They said, well, grass seed, fertilizer, peat moss, because it does something to change the acidity in the soil, great. Um, water, and then they have this green foam that's amazing. It pops up and it actually like, gives you a fake yard instantly. It's like a toupee for your yard, it's amazing. <laughs> Pretty soon grass is growing. But let me ask you a question. What if they had just left out one ingredient, like the seed or the water or the fertilizer? You leave out one ingredient, no grass. The same is true with children. If you wanna grow children, you need all of the ingredients, like a mom and a dad and love and commitment and security. Now listen, again, there are so many things. I know you're, some of you are resisting. Well, what if, what if, and what about, and I didn't have, listen, I get it. Listen, there's no guarantees, right? Because all of the children are dirty, rotten sinners. And there has to be a regenerating of their spirit to have any inclination to do anything that would be godly, right? But God uses the means of grace of a mom and a dad in a committed one flesh, one union relationship to grow great kids. But listen, great kids can produce rotten, I'm sorry, great parents can produce rotten kids. And rotten parents can produce great kids. 
There's no guarantees. Um, there's nothing you can do to guarantee you're gonna have godly kids. But there's a few things that you can do to almost ensure that you don't have godly kids. And we have to embrace the gift of marriage. I hear parents sometimes say, I just want my kids to have all the things that I didn't have as a kid. And you're thinking of like a PlayStation and an iPhone. Like, why don't you give them a marriage? You know what they really want? They want you to love their biological mother and their biological father for a lifetime. Why don't you give them that? Here's the third thing. Marriage provides children a daily example of godly womanhood and godly manhood because they get to see it every day. If you want, you can turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to pull a passage of scripture out of there. And uh, let me just say before I read it, the immediate context of this passage is actually talking about church leadership. It's talking about elders and pastors. But uh, we can apply it very easily to parenting because it uses a, a word, shepherding. Let's read it. 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, verses 2 and 3, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I'm sure we have oh, probably hundreds of different occupations represented in the room. Is there anybody here that like your professional occupation is a shepherd? All the shepherds stand up. We have no shepherds here today. The reason we have no shepherds is because we have a lack of sheep in Northern Indiana here. Now back in Bible times, there were a lot of shepherds because there was a lot of sheep. Do you know why there were a lot of sheep? because there was a lot of sin that had to be atoned for. And as a placeover, God created this system to share a word picture with us that the cost of sin was blood and so these sheep had to be raised in order to be sacrificed so the blood could be shed, giving us a picture that one day the Lamb of God, Jesus, would lay down his life as the Lamb of God shed his blood so there wouldn't have to be any more sacrifice. Once for all, he paid the price for sin with his blood. He's the great shepherd and he's the Lamb of God. So we have this wonderful picture of the gospel in this one word, shepherding. But it's also a picture of parenting. Interestingly, he, he turns a noun into a verb. Shepherd the flock, that's a verb. So what does a shepherd do? Two things. He leads the sheep and he feeds the sheep. What's your job as a parent? To lead and to feed. You lead them away from danger and into righteousness. In, you lead them away from lies and into truth. You lead them away from threats into safety. You feed the sheep, and that's not just talking about, you know, feed them Doritos and Taquitos, in other words, it rhyme with Eatos, Cheetos, all, all the best food for children. You, you have to give them spiritual nourishment, feed them the truth of God's word. And so that's what we do as parents. We shepherd this flock that is among us. And notice he says, we don't do it under compulsion. We do our job 
willingly. We accept the responsibility to lead and to feed these sheep, not because I have to, but because I want to, not under compulsion. Then he says we're to do it eagerly, not for shameful gain. Can I be honest with you? Most mornings when I wake up, I wish my children were grown. I'm like 20% done. I'm like, okay, I got one, send them out. Just when are the rest? When? We got about five more years here. Okay, so um, that's not the right attitude. The reason I have that attitude is because I'm selfish. I want to spend all my money on me. I want to spend all my time on me. I want to watch the television shows I want to watch. I don't want to watch the Disney Channel anymore. I just, and yet, as a shepherd, what does a shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. Do it eagerly. And then he says, not domineering over those in your charge. A shepherd does his job humbly. If your idea of parenting is dominating or intimidating your children, you're not doing your job right. You do your job humbly. And the job of a parent is to come along and say, you know what? I don't do my job right half the time. Would you please forgive me? My tone, my attitude, my selfishness, my neglect, my absence. You go to your children, you humbly say, I am, God is teaching me. I'm a work in progress. Would you please forgive me and give me another shot? And then he says this, but being examples to the flock. You model parenting. What does a model do? A model wears something and makes it look so good, you want to wear it too. All morning, I've been modeling this shirt. Have you noticed that? You like my shirt? You want one? You want it? Don't you think it would look good on you? That's what a good model does. And every parent is the model for marriage. You make it look so good your kids say, I can't wait to get one of those. Not, I don't, that looks so ugly. I'm never going to wear that. Your examples to the flock. My youngest daughter, Leah, she's 15, and um, tomorrow she starts driver's ed. She has visions of having a driver's license and driving a car down some of your streets passing some of you on the road. Lately, she's been asking me a question as we get in the car together. She says, Dad, why are you driving so slow? Oh, you noticed, did you? Yes, Dad tends to drive now one mile an hour below the speed limit, right? I come to a full and complete stop at every stop sign. My hands are at 10 and 2. My safety belt is, I'm glaring into the... Why am I doing that? Because dad realized driver's education doesn't start tomorrow. Driver's education started the first time I strapped her in the car seat and started to drive the car. Because she's not gonna drive the car the way the overpaid driving instructor teaches her to drive the car. She's gonna drive the car the way the underpaid dad drives the car. I'm not underpaid, you're very nice to me. But she's watching the way that I drive. She's going to drive the car the way that I drive the car. She's going to do marriage the way that I do marriage. 
So we had this happy event on Friday night. I mean, it was just, just, I mean, it was just the best moment ever. So good. And that was 22 years in the making. In the middle of the ceremony, I not only walked her down the aisle, but I officiated the, the wedding. And so I got to say my last words to her as a single lady. And I, I reminded her of a conversation that Brooke and I began when she was four years old. And I said, you know, when you were four years old, we actually started talking about what is happening right here, right now. And I said, if you'll remember, I said some words like this. I said, now, one of these days, your heart is going to be drawn to a boy. Now, I know that right now that sounds like the creepiest thing. You don't, I don't, can't even imagine touching one of those. You know? I, I know that sounds weird, but you're going to find yourself in your heart drawn to a boy. Now, it's very, very dangerous to give your heart to the wrong boy. And it's very dangerous to give your heart to the right boy at the wrong time. You can make a lot of mistakes with your heart. The good news is this. God has given you someone to help you guard your heart. It's called a dad. And so this is what I want to ask you to do. I I want you to give me your heart. And I promise I will guard your heart. I will care for your heart. I I won't break your heart. And then as you grow up together, this is what we're going to do. We're going to find a guy that we can both trust to give your heart to who's not going to break it. Would you give me your heart? And sure enough, as a four-year-old, she did. And then we had this conversation again when she was five and six and seven and all the way up until she was 22 to make sure you don't give your heart away at the wrong time to the wrong person. And so I reminded her of all of that, shared that story. We cried a little bit. And then I looked at David. And I said, David, Brooke and I, along with Andrea, feel like we have found the right guy for the job. And so today, we are giving her your heart and we are trusting you, don't break it. I said it nicer than that. Now, what, what David really didn't know and what I didn't include in the wedding ceremony is another chapter of that story that I'll share with you right now. When Brooke was 11 years old, she had this big pack of friends and we were all close and our families were close. We all knew each other and it was just a great group of kids and there were boys and girls, but we, we noticed that there was this one 14-year-old boy that seemed to have his eye on 11-year-old Brooke. And we were noticing Brooke's heart was kind of withdrawing a little bit from us and she wasn't talking as much. And and Andrew and I were like, what do we do, what do we do? And so we decided we would go have a talk with Brooke and remind her of the heart conversation. And and we went up and we say, hey, you know, we've kind of noticed this thing is you're kind of pairing off and that's, this is not the right time. And and you remember, hey, you just don't give your heart away. I think you're maybe giving your heart away to, We'll change his name to protect the guilty, Butch. Um, We think that Butch might be like 
stealing party. You're hard here and this is not the right time. And, and you know what? She said, yeah, it's super awkward and I don't know what to do with these feelings. And I'm like, great, great, we're here to help. We're here to help. This is what it's supposed to be. So let's all get to, on the same page. And it was great conversation. We, we talked and we cried and we prayed and left that conversation and I had Brooke's heart again. But then I got to thinking about Butch and his dad, and I was really good friends with him. I'm like, I wonder if this conversation's happening with Butch and his dad. And so I called and just said, hey, I want to let you know what a little conversation we had with Brooke. And we kind of noticed this thing going on. I don't know if you've noticed or not. And he said, yeah, we've kind of noticed that. And we've been meaning to talk to him. I'm like, well, now would be a great time. Um, so they had their little conversation and, and everybody on the same page, same values. Awesome. But then I, <laughs> I dared to ask one more question. I said, hey, do you think maybe I could talk to Butch? And he said, oh, I think that'd be a great idea. I'm like, okay. So I said, well, you know, could I just come by and take Butch out? Not like take Butch out, but like we could go, you know, get some burgers together or something. And he said, oh yeah, that'd be great. And so Butch was so excited for me to show up. Not really. So, uh, but I did. And so we went out and we sat across the table and chomping on some hamburgers. And I said, well, Butch, you probably know why we're here and he said, yeah. I said, well, the reason we're here is because I think, I think you have something that belongs to me. And I want it back. I think you, you actually have a piece of Brooke's heart. And I showed her the whole you know, scenario. This is the way it works in the Griffith family. And she gives us our heart. We protect it. We find a guy. Together we can give it off some. And like that, so just, I just don't know that this is going according to plan here. And I just want to get you on the same page. I've talked to your dad. Love your family. Love you. Just want to work together. Great. So, and I said, Butch, listen, I know what it's like to be a 14-year-old guy. I remember and, and I'm, I'm sure that you are attracted to Brooke. Brooke is a beautiful girl, wouldn't you say? <laughs> now, at this point, no matter what he says, he's in trouble, okay? If he says, no, she's not that attractive, that's a problem. If he says, yeah, she's gorgeous, that's a problem. So, I mean, I, I, I have an opportunity here to coach a young man. And so I said, now, Butch, I, I've actually read a lot on this subject, and I, I actually know a few things about marriage. Um, I read a book recently that said that 14-year-old boys think about sex every eight seconds. Would you agree with that? And you and I both know they're lying about the other seven seconds, right? <laughs> but all of that is good. God created all of that. That's, that's meant to drive you to a woman that one day will be your wife in a covenant relationship. All that's great. But listen, this is, this is not the time. And I want you to know Brooke's heart belongs to me. If you want part of Brooke's heart, then the only way to Brooke's heart is actually through me. And if you want a relationship with Brooke, you have to build a relationship with me. And if you're interested in that, I'm great. We can talk about that in about 10 years and you can come and we'll have burgers again. I'll buy, but this is not the time and we need to create, you know, some boundaries here. And, and he, he joyfully agreed to follow that plan. And so that was a time to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, willingly, eagerly, as examples. Something you may not know about David, David's 22, and um, about three years ago, he and his father were shoveling snow in the winter here together, and 
His dad, at the age of 60 years old, had a massive heart attack. He died in David's arms. And it was about six months after that that Brooke and David met, and that meant Trent and David met. And David just really leaned into the relationship, and we started going to breakfast together. We've been going to breakfast together every week for about two years, and he opened his heart to me and wanted my input. And, and I, you know, although I could never replace his dad, in some way I got to shepherd him through some of this process. And that's why Friday was so fun, is because we watched these two do it God's way. A few years ago, I shared that story about Brooke and Butch at a family life weekend to remember in Hershey, Pennsylvania. When I got home from that conference, I got an email from a guy named Chuck Savage. Isn't that the greatest name ever for a guy, you know? He's a real guy. This is what he says. He says, having a disciplined childhood and a military background, I took the dictator approach to handling my youngest daughter's rebellious nature with disastrous results. She sought out and befriended several less than desirable male companions. Those undesirable companions filled the vacuum in her heart that I, as her father, failed to fill when she was younger. At the age of 18, my daughter Ashley moved out of our home. The boy with whom my daughter was staying accidentally started a late night fire in his apartment. When the fire alarm sounded, he awoke and ran out of the dark smoke-filled apartment without regard to my daughter's life. She was left behind to die of smoke inhalation. I so wish I'd heard your story about how you handled your daughter's situation 14 years ago when my little girl was 12. I should have guarded her heart as the precious gift that it was. While I did what I thought was right at the time, an alternative proven approach based on God's love and understanding would have been most welcome. It's too late for me now, but not for the scores of parents that you speak to. Please, 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 he says. Emphasize to fathers of young daughters the importance of establishing and maintaining a dialogue of love and support with their daughters at an early age, as you have done with your daughter. Take my word for it. The consequences of a father's ignorance or inaction are simply incomprehensible. I hope the pain and the guilt that I live with every single day serves as an imperative for other fathers to take positive and continuous action to guard their daughter's heart from harm. I may never be as clever as my neighbor down the street. I may never be as wealthy as some other men I'll meet. I may never have the fame that other men have had, but I've got to be successful as my little girl's dad. There are certain dreams I cherish I'd like to see come true, some things I'd like to accomplish before my working days are through. But the task my heart is set on is no mere passing fad, for I've got to be successful as my little girl's dad. I may never come to glory, I may never gather gold, 
Men may count me as a failure when my business life is told. But if these that follow after will be godly, then I'll be glad. For then I'll know I've been successful as my little girl's dad. It's the one job I dream of. It's the task I think of most. For if I fail these little ones, I have nothing else to boast. For all the wealth I'd gather, my fortune would be sad if I fail to be successful as my little girl's dad. Would you bow your heads for a moment? I know that many of you may have heavy hearts right now for a prodigal child. Many of you may be carrying regret, mistakes. Some of you are thinking, I wish I'd heard this 25 years ago. I get it. The reality is you probably did hear it 25 years ago, but didn't listen. God stands ready to forgive, to cleanse, to heal, to redeem hearts that are humble enough to admit that we strayed from his path. Would you do that right now? Would you open your heart to him and pray? Seek his grace. The truth is he is the only perfect father, a heavenly father. If you'll bring the broken pieces to him, there's no guarantee that it's gonna fix the relationship you have with your kids or even your spouse. But you can fix your vertical relationship with God if you'll repent, trust Christ over and over, and then trust Christ with your kids and with your spouse. Father, I wanna pray right now for my friends and I pray that they would sense a measure of your mercy and your grace. And yet for many of us, there are changes that need to take place as we walk out of here. What we do on Tuesday nights and Friday nights and what we do in the mornings, the attitudes and the tone of our voice, the time and the attention that we would give to those that we say we love. Lord, I do pray that you would redeem and restore and mend I pray that none of us would be faithful to the wife or the husband of our youth. God, would you, in spite of our performance, create godly children that the next generation would have a measure of your glory and change this world. Convince us that marriage is not obsolete. Marriage is good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.